Welcome, everybody, from around the world to our weekly Saturday talk. I'm Father Chris Alar here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy with the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. And as we've been doing the last several Saturdays, we're going to bring you elements of the Explaining the Faith DVD series that I am talking about. Uh, please see on your screen, if you like, if you've been enjoying these talks, please uh, consider getting the whole DVD set. You can see on your screen, you can visit shopmercy.org to get a copy. Uh, they're only $14.95. Uh, you can also call 1-800-462-7426. Or if you want to stream it, we now have method to do that. If you go to thedivinemercy.org slash explaining the faith. Okay, so we over the last, as I said, several Saturdays, have been bringing to you different elements of our Catholic faith. Now, this next two weeks, which are going to be different today and next Saturday, July 4th, are not going to be duplicates of each other, but they are going to be separate. If you miss today, you can still tune in next to Saturday to receive some, um, I think, hopefully good information. But what we really want you to do is hopefully be with us for both today, June 27th and Saturday, um, July the 4th. And that is the series that we are now called uh, or that we are doing called Divine Mercy 101, as you saw on the title screen. So our goal here is in a fun and simple way to give you everything you need to know <clears throat> about divine mercy. Everything that will help you answer questions. You can become the parish expert, uh, help your friends or under, not understanding fully what divine mercy is all about. This is important because we Marian fathers are the ones who brought the message of divine mercy, or I should say the devotion of divine mercy to the world through, from St. Faustina, through her confessor, Blessed Michael Sapochko, then to our Miriam priest, Joseph Jarzembowski. And stay tuned for future videos because we're going to explain to you how that all happened. But the bottom line is this. If you can see the next slide, I'm coming to you right here from the Shrine of Divine Mercy. There's a bigger close-up view of it as you can see the shrine from where I'm speaking. You might recognize this shrine on EWTN. We daily pray the chaplet of Divine Mercy from this shrine. Uh, you might recognize our well-known priests like Father Mike Gately and Father Don Calloway who have been spreading this message of mercy for many years. Um, but it is, the reason I showed that picture of the shrine is, is because of this. Now, any church, not just our shrine, but especially our shrine, and any church is where you go to meet Jesus. This is where we come. This is where I am right now. Christ is present in the tabernacle. This is where we come to meet Jesus. Now, who is Jesus? Well, Father, that's kind of a basic question. Well, actually, no. Um, if I was to ask all of you watching this, who is Jesus, I, I would get some different answers. But I think we all pretty much would agree that Jesus is God. Okay, that being said, who is God? If you could explain one word, or I should say pick one word to describe God, what would that one word be? Well, look at your screen. The next slide. 
God is love. If you could pick one word to describe God, it would be love. That was the encyclicals from the church. God is love. The, this is the starting point for what we're going to teach you about divine mercy. All right. Why love though? All right. The reason that the one word, and God is many things. He's omnipotent, meaning all powerful. He's omniscient, which means he's all knowing. All those things are true. But why is the best word to describe God love? Okay, because love is the greatest of all virtues. Now we have many virtues, prudence and temperance and fortitude and justice. Those are the cardinal virtues. Then we have even higher virtues called the theological virtues, which are given to us at baptism. They're a gift. We don't earn them. And those are called the three theological virtues. What are they? Faith, hope, and the greatest of these is love. So that's why we say God is love, because it is that one virtue that stands above all others. Okay, love is the greatest of all virtues, but is all love the same? All right, not all love is the same. Even the Greeks used to teach us. You have like romantic love, eros. You have filial love, like the love between a father and a son, filial love. Uh, you also have a higher level of love, agape love, which is completely forgiving of yourself. Now, of all those modes of love, they're not the same. You know, um, I always used to say, we use the word love for everything nowadays. Like I, I say myself, I love Michigan football. I'm a graduate of the University of Michigan. I love Michigan football. But do I love Michigan football the same way I love my mom? Now, she probably would say yes, but of course not. There's a higher form of love, right? So the very highest mode of the highest virtue, because remember, I just said love is the highest virtue. But then I said within love, you have different forms of love. The highest of that is mercy. So mercy is the highest form of the highest virtue. Of all the virtues, love is the highest. And of all the forms of love, eros or filial or agape, the highest is that highest level of agape, which is mercy. This is the important thing to remember. Mercy is the highest form of the highest virtue. What is it? Mercy is basically a particular mode of love that when love encounters suffering, it takes action to do something about it. Now, look at our next slide. This is Father Kosicki. Now, Father Kosicki, read that quote he does because basically love, mercy is having pains in your heart for the pains of another and taking pains to do something about their pains. It's a lot of pain, isn't it? Well, that is why mercy is such an important aspect of what our spiritual life entails. All right. Now, I'm going to show you the next slide, which is something I talked about a few weeks ago. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. This is a high school shooting. Now, back in our pain and suffering talk, I talked about this in detail. So again, I'm just going to briefly touch on it here. We have a lot of pain and evil in the world. 
There is an example that we just showed you of a school shooting in Florida. Um, and it begs the question, with all this pain and suffering in the world, does evil exist? Now, if you want to see my, my uh, topic uh, of one of my talks a few weeks ago about why would a good and loving God allow suffering, we talked about this. Evil, does it exist as a real thing? And the answer is no. Because God can't create something contrary to his nature. Well, Father, God can do anything. Okay. Can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? Well, yes, he can, Father. Well, okay, then that means he can't lift it. Oh, well, no, he can lift it. Well, then that means he can't create a rock so big. Uh, Father, that sounds kind of crazy. Yes, it's called an absurdity. And so God creating evil is an absurdity. It can't happen because it defies his very nature. But what God does, everything he created is ontologically good. What happens is we choose to turn away from God. This is what happened with Satan, right? Satan was ontologically created good. He chose to turn away from God. And when you remove God, who is goodness itself, remember I said this a couple of weeks ago, when we take goodness itself, who is God, and we remove it, we remove him, who is goodness itself, when we take God out of our schools, out of our courts, out of our, out of our families, out of our society, we remove goodness itself. And that's the definition of evil. Evil is a privation of the good, a lack of the good. So you take something, anything, and you pull God out of it, you remove goodness, what's left is evil. And so this is very important. I told the story about the shirt. I saw the girl at the airport, right? Um, where in her, on her shirt, it said, Columbine, Sandy Hook. You know, these are the school shootings. And then it said, God, quote, how can you let this happen in our schools, question mark. And then below it, it said, God, quote, I'm not allowed in your schools. And so this is the problem. When we pull God out, what's left is evil. This is what's happening in our society today. Since 1963, when we removed God and prayer from the schools, Abortion rates have accelerated. Unwed pregnancies have accelerated. Violent crimes have accelerated. Divorce rates have accelerated. All of those were low and even declining prior to 1963. In 1963, the Supreme Court said no more prayer in the schools. And this is what's been happening. You see, there is no amount of laws that are going to change these things. Um, there is no gun laws. There's no laws that are going to force these types of harmony between people. Only God's mercy will bring that peace and the end of the suffering. Because we have removed God from our society, we have brought evil into the world and we suffer. Now, when we suffer, what does God do? Look at your next slide. This is a powerful slide that I got all permissions <clears throat> from these pictures that we're using. And this is one of my favorites because what is going on here? Jesus is holding up the sinner. Jesus, who's that sinner? You and me. That is who that sinner is. And who's holding him up? Jesus. 
God wants to do something about this suffering. Look in this guy's hand. What is he holding? He's holding a hammer. What's in his other hand? A nail. That's us who are nailing our Savior to the cross. How? By our sins. And when our sins nail our Savior to the cross, the result is God turning that evil on its ear and bringing a greater good. His resurrection, redemption, and our sanctification for eternal life. Amazing stuff. This is divine mercy. <clears throat> God taking, excuse me, <clears throat> God taking our misery and doing something about it. Remember, I said mercy is a particular mode of love that when love encounters suffering, there's Jesus encountering our suffering. It takes action to do something about it. And what is Jesus doing? He's holding us up, as you saw in that picture. This is divine mercy. As Father Seraphim says, it's loving the unlovable, forgiving the unforgivable. Let's go back to that that image of the man holding the hammer and Jesus holding him up. Let's go back to that. That guy is you and me. We are, look at that picture. We are unlovable. We are unforgivable. But what is Jesus doing in that picture? He is loving us and he is forgiving us. So thank you for showing that picture again. We are all unlovable. We are all unforgivable. So we are suffering. Because of that, our sufferings have been, you could turn on the news today, you can just look at your own life. This has been the problem of what happens in our living in this valley of tears. If this world was all there is, I could understand people not believing in God. But you know what? This world is not all there is. There's something much greater, the Bible tells us, something that we have to look much more forward to, and that's heaven and eternal life. And this is what we're going to talk about, how to get there. So where do we find an answer to all of this suffering? Look at your next slide. The church, the mass. Look at that picture. People are always saying, wow, Father, that's a beautiful picture. That was St. Albertus in downtown Detroit. I'm from Detroit. And people, I've been to Europe, I've been all around the United States, I've preached in all the, all the states, and I tell you, I'm hard-pressed to ever find more beautiful churches than downtown Detroit. St. Albertus is an example right there on your screen. Uh, that one is no longer open, but you have Sweetest Heart of Mary, St. Jehoshaphat. These churches are incredible, but that's where we need to come. Where we come to find a let go of this misery and find an answer to that misery, which is God's mercy, is right there in that church. Our shrine, your church at home, regardless if you're in the Philippines or Portugal or right here in the United States, that's where the answer is. Now, the mass, as you saw in that picture, is the answer. Why? Because only in the mass... Do we have perfect prayer? Nowhere else do you have perfect prayer. You see, when we pray, which the Bible tells us to do, it's good to start every day and end every day and somewhere in the middle with private prayer. The Bible says, go to your room, close your door, pray in private. This is great. It's only a start though. 
because communal prayer is always, and it even mentions it in the Bible, more powerful. And secondly, the fact is the mass, which is communal prayer, is the only perfect form of prayer. Because our prayers, when you pray or I pray, we are blocked, we are blocking some of the grace of God by our sins. You've all been in a room where you're trying to sleep, but it's light out and you pull the shade. You notice that that shade blocks a lot of the sunlight, but some of that light still gets in. That's like God's grace. When we pray, his grace never stops shining. It's like the sun. People talk about the sun rising and setting. The sun doesn't rise. The sun doesn't set. The sun never stops shining. God's grace is like that. What happens is we turn away from it or we pull that shade down. That's our sins. So when we pull the shade down with our sins in our life, we're blocking some of that light of God's grace. Do you know the only place where God's grace is not blocked in the slightest? The mass. Because the mass is God offering God to God. That's what I learned in catechism as a little kid. I'll never forget it. You see, the mass is, the whole mass is a prayer to who? People say, Jesus. Uh-uh. The mass is a prayer to the Father by the sacrifice and offering of the Son, Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit is it done. So this perfect mass is a perfect prayer given by the perfect love of the Trinity to each other, like a big circle. So the mass is God offering God to God. God, the uh, son, is offering himself and his sacrifice through God, the Holy Spirit, to God, the Father. It's God offering God to God. So God, the Holy Spirit, offers God, the Son, to God, the Father, in atonement for our sins and the sins of the whole world. This is what is so powerful. Now, I said a second ago, it's like a circle. I'm going to give you four years of seminary in four minutes because our entire faith can be explained in one concept, the concept of a circle. What we, and the only Latin I'm going to give you today called exitus, reditus. All comes from God, exitus. All will return to God, reditus. And this is really everything you need to know. You know, when I went to seminary, um, the biggest tool that we used to learn our faith was something called the Summa Theologica by Thomas Aquinas. And in it, Thomas Aquinas wrote volumes explaining who God is, what virtue is, what the blessed sacrament is. And when you read it, it's mounds and mounds and volumes of detail, old writings, old language. I don't really think too many. Now, I might be wrong. Some of you might. But sit down every night and have read that cover to cover. If you haven't, that's okay. I'm going to summarize it for you all right here. That whole concept is the circle. All comes from God. All will return to God. It's what we call, as I said, exitus reditus. Now, these are what you need to know.
God's acts of mercy are many and are infinite. But I'm going to say and steal from Father Seraphim, there are three acts of his mercy that are greater than all the others. And the three great acts of mercy are part of that circle, all coming from God, all returning to God. What are they? The first great act of mercy that we attribute to the first person of the Trinity, creation. You see, all came from God. Doesn't that mean creation? Yes, we all came forth. We were all created in the first great act of mercy, who we normally attribute to the first person of the Trinity, creation. What happened? It took all the 10 minutes for mankind to get broken in the garden, right? Mankind in the garden got broken and it took very little time for God to realize he's got to step in and do something. Remember the definition of mercy? A particular mode of love, God is love. When love encounters suffering, now all of a sudden in the garden, we're broken. Adam and Eve sinned. Now suffering enters the world, pain, death, disease. God sees it. But remember the definition of mercy, a particular mode of love. When love encounters suffering, it takes action to do something about it. So what did God do right then and there in the garden? He did something about it. What did he do, Father? Genesis 3.15, the gift of a mother and the promise of a savior. I talked about that on my Mary talk a few weeks ago. You could look it up here on YouTube or on Facebook. But it took very little time for us to get in a mess. So the second great act of mercy was to clean up our mess. And that second great act of mercy, we normally attribute to the second person of the Trinity. He came down from heaven, redemption. He redeemed us by his passion, death, and resurrection on the cross. Now, end of story, not quite. Because Jesus fixed humanity, now what? Well, now he needs to bring it back to God the Father for all eternity. We all came from God, exitus. We got broken. Now we got to be returned back to God, repaired. It's kind of like, you know, um, Jesus is coming down and saying, I'm going to fix you so that I can take you back to where you came from even better than you were before. You know, I'm a product of the 70s and my favorite TV show was The Six Million Dollar Man. Some of you might remember it. But remember this phrase of that show? Steve Austin, astronaut. He was a good man, smart man. Was a man barely alive. He got in an accident, just like Adam and Eve. And then the show says, gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We can make him better, stronger, faster than he ever was before. And then he comes out, Lee Majors comes out running, right? And do, 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 and, and the music plays. And as a little kid, I used to be enthralled by that. Well, you know what? A greater true story of that is what Jesus did. Here we had Adam and Eve with the preternatural gifts. They didn't get sick. They didn't suffer. And all of a sudden they got in an accident just like Steve Austin, the $6 million man. And they got in an accident. And here comes Jesus and fixes them. And all of a sudden makes them better than they were before. Why? 
because in the third, he repaired their broken humanity. He, he fixed them. But now in the third and the greatest act of mercy, guess who? You got it. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, by his power, Christ resurrects back to the Father and brings us broken humanity with him. So we return back to God the Father better than we were before. That third great act of mercy is called sanctification. Or in the East, divinization. We are now sharers in the divine life of God. As St. Augustine says, oh, happy fault. Before the fall, we just, you know, we had it pretty good here on earth. But after the fall... We've been redeemed and now we share in the inner life of the Trinity, which we didn't have before. Now that's not saying go out and sin and God will reward you. Doesn't mean that. But what it means is God gives us a fixing to our broken humanity. Now, these three acts of mercy. The first act of mercy, creation. From the first person of the Trinity, the Father. Then we got broken. So in the second act of mercy, the second person of the Trinity came down and redeemed us. Now in the third, final, and greatest act of mercy, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, will take us back to God the Father for where we came, better than we were before, redeemed, fixed, repaired, and made ready to share in the divine life of God. This is incredible. But where does it happen? Where does it happen? Every day, somewhere around the world. Father, uh, our baptism, yeah. Peter says we were divinized at our baptism. Uh, when we die, we behold the beatific vision, yeah. When we behold God and entering into heaven. But where does it happen every minute of every day, somewhere around the world? The answer, the mass. Here at the Mass, that is what is happening. Every day that we come to Mass, this is what we see. God offering God to God. What's the high point of the Mass, Father? The consecration. Yes, but even the consecration culminates in a certain part of the Mass that we call, the, Father Mike Gately says it all the time, this supercharged moment of the Mass. It's called the concluding doxology. What is that? That's when the priest takes the patent and the chalice. And what's going on? Just what I said. All came from God and now all is returning to God. All of us creation is present at the mass. First act of mercy. Even if your friends and relatives aren't here at the mass, all of creation is present at the mass. So all of creation is present at the mass. Now what happens? Christ comes and he redeems us. He is, he, is, he is paying our debt for sin, which he died and resurrected so that we could have eternal life. Now that sacrifice has to be brought back to God the Father, but the difference is now we are attached. You see, before it was just the Trinity. Now God has opened up all of heaven to mankind. And now we are sharing in that divine life. So in the mass where the priest lifts up the patent and the chalice and says, through him and with him and in him, O God, almighty father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, 
all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. What's happening is a completion of the Trinity. All creation came from God. We got broken. Jesus redeemed us on the cross. Now the Holy Spirit's returning us back to God the Father. Incredible. This is what divine mercy is. All right, now, in the Mass, You've heard me say this before, but this is why Jesus is so important. What Jesus gives us in, 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 in now I'm going to get into deeper part of divine mercy because you've heard me say before in, in the mass, we actually have a wedding. The, the mass is actually a wedding and that wedding is what we experience when we come to mass. Who is the groom? Jesus. Who is the bride? The church. Who is the church? We are. You've heard me say it before. When you come to Mass and you walk up this aisle, it's just like a Catholic Mass. You are the bride. And who's waiting for you at the altar? Your groom. When you are, were married and you came up this aisle as the bride, the groom was waiting for you at the altar. The two became one. That night it was consummated. The groom entered into the bride. And it's the same thing in this nuptial love of the of Jesus the groom and the church us the spouse when we come up this aisle who's waiting for us at the altar Jesus the groom in the form of the host and what happens the two become one and the groom Jesus enters into us the bride and it's consummated this is what's happening at the mass this is it this is why the priest Please don't knock your church that the church is sexist and, and is anti-women. No, the church understands what is only given to her by God. And, 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 and so when the church was given by God, the priest was a man, not because it's sexist, but because he's in persona Christi. He's in the person of Jesus. That's why as a priest, who is my bride? It's not a girl I used to date or even the girl I was engaged to. We are not married. We are celibate because our bride is the church. Why? Because the priest is in the persona Christi, in the person of Christ. And that wedding nuptial between Christ and his bride is who the priest is. His bride is the church. And this is why he's not married in the earthly sense but he is in the supernatural sense. And people say, well, Father, the church is just sexist. No, it isn't. Because a higher calling than even a diocesan priest is a cloistered nun. Did you know that? What's a higher calling? A diocesan priest or a cloistered nun? Actually, a cloistered nun is a higher vocational calling in a way of life. Not, I'm not talking the sacraments here, because yes, the Diocesan priests can confer the sacraments and a, and a cloister nun can't. But in the way of life, the diocesan priest actually is not as high a way of life as a cloistered nun. Jesus said it to Martha and Mary. Mary has chosen the better half. Martha was apostolic. Mary was more contemplative. This is what we have in cloistered nuns. So don't think the church is sexist. It's just the roles for men and women are different. Not meaning one's inferior or superior. They're just different. And this is what we, we understand in the church. All right. So in this mass, what's going on here? 
What's going on here is Pope Benedict tells us in spirit of the liturgy, when you come to mass, the whole roof of the church opens up and the angels and the saints ascend and descend and all of heaven and created earth are united like no other time ever. At the mass, the roof of the church opens up and the angels and the saints ascend and descend and, <clears throat> and we on earth are united with the choirs of heaven. And so all of heaven and earth are united and present at the mass. And that's why the first great act of mercy creation is all present here at the mass. Even if somebody you know is not physically here, in spirit, all is united. Now, what happens? In, 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 in the mystic's explanation, your guardian angels, who you come and come with you to mass, and please come to mass because that's sometimes the only time your guardian angel can be in the presence of the Lord, full body, blood, soul, and divinity. Go to adoration for your guardian angel because in, in adoration, you're giving your guardian angel the opportunity to adore our Lord, true body, blood, soul, and divinity. If you never go to adoration or to mass, your guardian angel doesn't get to experience that in the way that he could if you went to mass or adoration. All right. <clears throat> the mystics tell us that at the mass, the angels come forward and they kneel around the altar. Now, how many guardian angels you all have? If some of you have heard me say this, y'all have one, right? Guess how many I have? <laughs> Priests have two guardian angels. This is a tradition of the church. Why? Not because we're more holy, but because we need them. The devil is always on the attack for priests. He'll give up many souls to take down one priest. So please pray for your priests because they need your prayers. And so these, these guardian angels come forward and the mystics tell us at the mass, they're holding vessels. What's in those vessels? Well, what's in those vessels are what you put into it. Your joys, your sorrows, your, your hopes, your dreams, your pain. Put it in that vessel because the guardian angel is going to take it. And remember I said earlier when the priest raises the chalice and the patent and all is being returned to God, <clears throat> that's when your guardian angel puts what you put into that vessel, put it in the hands of your guardian angel and places it on that patent to be united back to God through the sun. Now don't be the kind of person who comes to mass and chomping on your gum, looking at your watch. When is this going to be over? No, don't make your guardian angel the sad guardian angel with nothing in its vessel. Put everything, all your prayers, all your hopes, as I said, dreams, joys, sorrows, put it in that vessel to be united back to God the Father because the Son's going back. He's ascending to the Father. He's taking us broken humanity, now repaired, back. Don't miss that boat. And people, oh, Father, I don't get anything out of the Mass. Are you kidding me? You can't get anything more out of the Mass. You seriously can't. Your entire salvation, as sinful as we are, broken, was won for us by one act of Christ on the cross and we don't get anything out of mass, that's what the mass is. This is so important. And the sacraments give us that grace. 
You've heard me say before, what makes our church different than any other is the sacraments. They do something. They're not just symbols. Holy communion is not just a wonder bread and grape juice. It's other churches have that as symbols. It's not a symbol. It's real grace. Remember the definition of a sacrament. I'll say it over and over. A sacrament is an efficacious sign, meaning it does something efficacious. An efficacious sign of God's grace entrusted to the church, or excuse me, instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is instilled in us. You can't get anything more than that. That is power, pure power. Well, Father, I'm not into this church thing. Really? Well, as I said in my talks before, well, Father, I'm not into organized religion. That's a shame because Jesus organized religion. Jesus set up the magisterium. He gave us the first bishops, gave them apostolic succession to ordain the first priest, established the, the throne of the papacy and put Peter upon it. I can go on and on. Jesus organized religion. And so what you have in our Catholic faith is Christ started this faith. For 1,500 years, there was only the Catholic faith. There were no other Christian religions. So personally for me, I don't believe Christ is going to come to this earth and start a church, which he said in scripture, I've come to begin, to begin my church, and that Jesus would start a church, which he did, and then get it wrong for 1,500 years until Martin Luther got it right. I personally don't believe that. Yeah, we got our brokenness, but oh, the father can't be the church of God. Oh no, yes it can. The church is like Jesus is both human and divine in her nature. The church has a human nature and a divine nature. In her divine nature, she's perfect. She'll never fail. In her human nature, she can fail. She has, she's broken. That's why we need to not abandon ship. As I say, we need to fix her not abandon her. And that's why you don't leave Jesus because of Judas. We've had some bad priests and bishops. We've had some Judases. We don't leave Jesus because of Judas. All right. Now you heard in my Catholic talk a few weeks ago, it's still online called Catholicism, that the church actually gave us the scriptures to be read at the mass. The mass predates the Bible. The Bible was not canonized to 393 and 397 in the councils of Carthage and Hippo. The mass was 350 years old already. And so this people is where you come. Now let's look at our next slide. This next slide is what? What's going on there? All right. You see a courtroom sort of right now. Who's that man in the middle, if you will, pointing his finger. Well, let's start by saying, who's he pointing his finger at? That's us. That's you and me. See the guy there? He's got his head down. He knows he's broken. He knows he's a sinner. Who's accusing him? Satan. That is Satan. Now, what is Satan accusing that man of? Satan is accusing that man of what? People always say to me, Father, sin. You're half correct. Satan is accusing that man of unconfessed sin. You see, unconfessed sin is the only thing Satan can bring up against us at our judgment. Wipe his opportunity to do that, blow it out of the water by going to confession. 
When you go to confession, that's how you get that all that opportunity for him to do that to you wiped away because he can't do that with confessed sins. Only unconfessed sins can Satan accuse us of. So get to the confessional. Now, what's going on? I was just talking about the mass, but the mass was tied to that picture I just showed. Now, let's go back to that picture real quick. If Brother Mark can put it back on the screen. Who's standing behind that broken man who represents you and me? All right. Here comes a man with long hair, beard, robe, bare feet. Obviously, that's Jesus. Now, Jesus walks in to that courtroom where we're on trial and basically stands next to us. Look at that picture. And basically, he steps up and he looks up at the judge and he says, Your Honor, Father, I have come to stand by this person. That's you. That's me. Now, what's going on here? Basically, you, me, all of us, when we die, will face judgment. And what happens is that is a judgment that God is the judge and has the right to say to us, based on our sins, we deserve the death penalty. We deserve to die. You deserve to die. I deserve to die because of our sins. Because what's going on there? Why is that the case? Let's look at the next slide. Jesus on the cross. That's actually not a Photoshop picture. That's one Brother Mark took at night, right out here at our 12th station of the cross. Isn't that picture incredible? That picture is a picture of Jesus on the cross. And I asked the question, and that's again, not Photoshopped. That's right from here at the shrine. But I want to start by asking this question. At every mass, we see Jesus on the cross, just like this photograph. It's in every church, you see Jesus on the crucifix. But I have a question for you. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Did you answer yet? All right, if you're like my seventh graders, they all say, Father, to forgive our sins. Yes, this is true. But Jesus is God. He could have forgiven our sins from heaven. He didn't need to die on a cross. Well, Father, because he loves us. Yes, this is true, but God could have loved us from heaven. He didn't need to die on a cross. Uh, Father, to open the door to heaven. Yes, this is true, but Jesus could have opened the door to heaven from within heaven. All of those are true, but most of the time people forget the biggest reason. The reason Jesus died on the cross is because the penalty for sin is death. When you die, or excuse me, when you sin or I sin, we deserve to die. And that's what was that courtroom picture when Jesus walked in. He basically is telling the judge, because basically when you go from before the judge, the judge has the right to tell you, you've sinned. That's the greatest crime. Your penalty is death. You deserve to die. The penalty for sin is death. It's cut and dry here. Ever from the beginning, the penalty for sin is death. You sinned. I've sinned. We're all going to be there at judgment day. God has the right to say your penalty is death. But instead, in walked that man through the back of the courtroom, stands next to you in front of the judge and says, your honor, father, I will take this person's place. I will die in their place because the penalty for sin is death. I'll take it upon myself so that this person can live. The wage for sin is death. St. Paul tells us this. So what's going on in this picture? That picture that Brother Mark showed 
We don't need to go back to it. But basically, Jesus is offering to take our place to die because the penalty for sin is death. Now, what do you got to do? Well, the first thing our Protestant brothers and sisters have correct is, yeah, I accept you, Jesus Christ, as my personal Lord and Savior. That's the first thing you got to do. So the Protestants got that part right. The problem is they let it stop right there. They think they're done. No, it's not done. Because what does the judge say? Does the judge say, okay, you can all go home now? No, the judge says, all right, you accept this person. You're going to die in their place. Yes, Christ says. Then he says, okay, to work out the details, we got to all come back here. Sunday at 8, 10, or 12, or even Saturday night at 5 p.m. What happens every Saturday night at 5 or Sunday ever at 8, 10, or 12? The Mass. And when you come to the Mass, you are not, we are not re-crucifying Christ. People say that all the time. You crazy Catholics got Christ on the cross. Jesus ain't on that cross no more. He's risen. I'm glad my Jesus ain't on that cross no more. Why do you crazy Catholics re-crucify him? Do we re-crucify him? Listen to the prayers of the Mass. It sounds like it. Especially like, you know, the uh, Passion Week. Doesn't it sound like we keep re-crucifying Christ thousands of times over history? No. Why? It's not a re-crucifixion. It's a re-presentation. Because you are at Calvary. When you come to Mass, we're not recreating it. You are there. When you walk into this church, you are at Calvary as Jesus is paying that debt to sin, which is death. That is why at every church you see, like behind me to the right on my shoulder is a cross and a crucifix of Jesus Christ. Because when you come to the mass, you are present at Calvary. You are there at the foot of Calvary as he is paying your debt to sin. So when the judge says to you, we got some details to work out, let's meet back here five o'clock on Saturday or Sunday morning at 8, 10 or 12. He basically is saying, go to the mass because that's where Christ is paying your debt to sin. Oh, but I'm too busy, Father, or your honor. Um, you know, the, remember the Bible passage where the, the king wanted to throw, guess what? A wedding feast for guess who? His son. That's just like God the Father throwing a wedding feast, the mass, for his son, Jesus. And he says, go invite everybody to come. So the servant goes out and invites. The first guy says, nah, I'm too busy. I, I just uh, started a business. Consider me excused. He goes to the next guy, come to the, this major wedding feast. He says, nah, too busy. I just bought a plot of land. I got to go inspect it. Then he goes to the next guy. He says, nah, I'm too busy. I just got married. Now that might be a valid excuse, right? No. The servant goes back to the king and he says, sorry, they're all too busy. Did the king say, oh, that's okay. I understand. Maybe next time. Is that what the king said? No. He was enraged. Because he offered the most incredible gift to these people and they didn't even bother showing up. And that's what we have in the gift of the mass, which is our wedding feast. And we don't even bother to show up for our own wedding. 
The, the Lord, the king locked the door and says, sorry, the ones left outside will be left. Now our job is to go out and invite our loved ones back in. This is what the mass is. Very powerful. So we don't re-crucify Christ. We give that opportunity to be present or we're given that opportunity to be present as he's paying our debt to sin. You know, when Jesus died on that cross, people always say, well, Father, you know, did he die for me? Yes, he died for everyone. And in fact, if you and I were all nailed to a cross, if everybody watching here was taken outside to the shrine here, nailed to a cross, we would feel the pain for our own wounds only. Like I would feel the pain of the nail going in my wrist, but not yours. The fact is the science tells us that over 110 billion people have lived since the world began. Currently in the world, there's seven and a half billion people alive today. Seven and a half billion. But science tells us pretty close estimate about 110 to 120 billion people have lived since the beginning of time. So if Jesus comes tonight, that means he died for every person who ever lived. Let's suppose he comes tonight and 120 billion people have lived since the beginning of time. You know what I believe? This is not church doctrine. Please don't write your bishop. This is my personal belief. I believe that since Jesus died for every one of us, that when that nail was driven in his wrist, he didn't feel it like you or I would. I believe he felt it 120 billion times more because he felt it for every human being who ever lived. Think about that next time you decide that your faith isn't important or this mass is insignificant. Think about that because that is what Christ did for us. All right, now we're gonna start wrapping up today. I wanna go over just a couple more slides. Take a look at the next slide. Here we have Adam and Eve, our good friends, right? Now, first of all, as Catholics, do we have to believe that Adam and Eve were real people? Do we have to believe that they actually were real flesh and blood? Do we? Yes. Yes, we do. The catechism teaches this. Why? Because, and you know, in fact, it's funny because <clears throat> you read the news and all the news wants to do is discredit Christianity. But I want to know where the news was back about 20 years ago. Where was Katie Couric? Remember Katie Couric? She couldn't wait to broadcast, you know, the church scandal was happening and all this and that. But where were the newscasters when they determined scientifically, genetically, that all living human beings alive in the world today can be traced back to one woman? This is actually true. All living human beings can be traced back to one woman. That's Eve. Do we read the Bible as literally true? Yes. Oh, well, Father, doesn't the Bible tell me to cut off my right hand if I sin? All right. We don't read the Bible as literalists. But the literal truth is, if there's something causing you to sin, get rid of it. That's what literal means. It doesn't mean you're a literalist, an actual saw off your hand. By meaning that we read the Bible is literally true means the message the author is trying to convey is true. Which means if you've got something in your life causing you to sin, you got to get rid of it. That's literally true. So that's why the Bible teaches what it does. Yeah, it uses hyperbole and metaphor. 
But this is important. All right, now, let's go back to Adam and Eve. Now, we just finished talking about the mass. Let's put Adam and Eve back up. Adam and Eve, in this picture, you see what's going on, right? There's the tree, the fruit, and God's mercy, yes, it's most seen in the mass, but it goes way back to the beginning of time, right here in the garden of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.15, the gift of a mother, the promise of a savior. But what was the problem with Adam and Eve? All right. The problem with Adam and Eve was not so much that they sinned. The problem with Adam and Eve is what happened afterwards. You see, Adam and Eve didn't know their ABCs. That was the problem with Adam and Eve. Why? Let's look at this. All right. Divine mercy is sometimes confused by priests all over the place as being optional because it's just a devotion. Adam and Eve give us the fact of mercy, not as a devotion, but as an actual message from God. And this is why divine mercy is unique. Yes, devotions in the Catholic Church have always been optional, like praying the chaplet. But divine mercy is not just a devotion. Divine mercy is a message. And that message is the heart of the gospel. That message, Pope Benedict said, the message of divine mercy is the nucleus of the gospel. In other words, if you reject divine mercy, you reject the scriptures. And I don't think that's optional. So let's look at the next slide. The next slide right now is called the message of divine mercy. We know it more commonly as the ABCs. Let's look at this. This is the message of divine mercy. This message is not optional. You want to get to heaven? You need all three of these to get to heaven. You, want to, you wouldn't be watching if you didn't want to get to heaven. I want to get to heaven. You want to get to heaven. Let's go through these three. You want to get to heaven? So do I. We need all three of these things on the screen. Let's look at the first one. A, ask for God's mercy. Is that optional? No. The scripture tells us unless we repent and ask for God's forgiveness, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. A, ask for God's mercy. B, be merciful to each other. Is that mandatory? You betcha. Matthew 20, 25. Matthew uh, 25, I'm sorry, Matthew 25 uh, chapter. Jesus made it very clear through the analogy of the sheep and the goats that what you do not do for the least of my brethren, you did not do it for me. In other words, he said at the end of time, the king will separate the sheep from the goats. On his right will be the sheep and he will say, good job, faithful servant. When I was hungry, you gave me food. Thirsty, you gave me drink. Naked, you gave me clothing. When I was in prison, you visited me. Welcome into the kingdom of your father. Well done, good and faithful servant. Then sorry to the goats on his left, he'll say, when I was hungry, you no gave me no food. When I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. When I was naked, you gave me no clothing. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. And they say, Lord, Lord. 
When did we see you hungry, thirsty, naked, or in prison? And he said, what you did not do for me, you did not do for your, or, or what you did not do for the least of my brethren, you did not do it for me. Away with you into the fire. Does that sound optional? Uh-uh. That's mandatory. You want to get to heaven? You've got to be a loving and merciful person. Now we all fail. This is true. We're broken. I still yell at my cameraman, Giuseppe. <laughs> we are broken. But in God's mercy, we can A, ask for forgiveness for that, and then keep trying B, to be merciful to each other. It's not optional. Matthew 20, 20, or excuse me, Matthew 25 says so. You want to get to heaven? You got to be merciful to each other. Now let's look at the last one. C. Let's put that back up on the screen. <clears throat> C. Completely trust in God's mercy. That is not optional. Why? Because to get to heaven, you need grace. And y'all want grace? Yeah, Father, I want to get to heaven. And you need grace. Okay, Father, give me grace. Well, Jesus said, the only way to get grace is through trust. You gotta trust him. Jesus said, trust is the vessel by which all grace is received. And we must trust him. That is what the entire Bible and St. Faustina's diary is about. God saw his little creatures commit sin and get broken and run and hide scared. And he wants to call them back to trust him. We cannot receive grace, Jesus said. Jesus said the vessel by which all grace is received is trust. So those ABCs, as I said, you want to get to heaven? The problem with Adam and Eve is they didn't know their ABCs. A, did Adam and Eve, did Adam and Eve ask for God's forgiveness and mercy? No. They didn't ask for God's mercy. They, 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 they never said they were sorry. Adam and Eve didn't, A, ask for God's mercy and forgiveness. They didn't even say they were sorry. B, did Adam and Eve be merciful to each other? Heck no. Adam, there's a real man. He turned around to God and pointed at Eve and said, Lord, it's her fault. She's the one. They weren't even merciful to each other. They're blaming each other. So Adam and Eve didn't be merciful to each other. And C, did Adam and Eve completely trust in God? No, they ran and they hid. They sewed fig leaves to hide their shame. They ran and they hid. And, and they pretended that God couldn't find them. <clears throat> the problem with Adam and Eve wasn't so much they sinned as that they didn't know their ABCs. Now here's where it all comes together. If you have all three of those, you will get to heaven. Now let's look at the next slide. If you don't have time to read the whole Bible from cover to cover, I'm going to summarize it for you in this one slide. The entire Bible is in one slide. That slide is right there. First of all, the Bible is a love story. That Bible is, begins with a wedding <clears throat> and ends with a wedding. What wedding? Adam and Eve and 
It begins with a, a wedding of man and woman, Adam and Eve, and it ends with a wedding. What is the last book of the Bible? Revelation. And what is Revelation? Revelation is a wedding. The wedding feast of the Lamb, the Mass. Basically, the Bible is the ABCs. Asking mercy, being merciful to each other, and completely trusting in God. Doing the will of God is what it's all about. That's what the Bible is about. And it's all about see trust. You want to know the summarize the Bible? It's a wedding. It's a romance story of God calling back his bride to trust him. And that's what the diary of St. Faustine is all about. It's about trust so that we return to God, the very Bible who speaks to us in the word. This is what's going on. Benedict, as I said, said the whole heart of the gospel is mercy. It's not optional. All right. So let's look at the next slide. So this message of divine mercy, the ABCs, God has been trying to give to his people for centuries. So look at the next slide. He has raised up many saints and prophets. These are the great saints that God has given throughout history to give the awareness to mankind, you and me, of this critical message of divine mercy. This message, it's the heart of the gospel. This message, it is not optional. It's called the ABCs. Ask for God's mercy, be merciful to each other, and completely trust in God's mercy. This is not optional. It's the heart of the gospel. And look at those saints. Those are the ones who God tried, excuse me, gave the message of mercy to, to give to the world. Now, since Adam and Eve, he's been trying to do this. He's been trying to give us this message of mercy. Now, have we been listening? Not really. Because we've fallen away. We go our own way. We want to do our will, not God's will. So finally, God for centuries has risen up saints and prophets to give us this critical message of divine mercy, which is not new, but was from the very beginning of the Garden of Adam and Eve, the ABCs, ask for mercy, be merciful to each other, and completely trust. And God had been trying to give it to mankind forever. Finally, he says, that's it. I'm done. I'm finished. Now, did, did he use those exact words? No, but that's what he meant when he basically said, and look at the next slide, you, St. Faustina, will prepare the world for my final coming. In essence, that's what I mean when God said, that's it. We're done. Basically, you, St. Faustina, will prepare the world for my final coming. That picture of St. Faustina is who God used to reinvigorate his message of mercy that had been around since Adam and Eve. She was a simple nun living a simple life, right? God doesn't pick who you would expect. This little nun had three years of three winners of education. She could barely read and write. She had no aristocratic background. She was a peasant. But isn't that exactly who God uses? You betcha. God doesn't use who you would expect. Look at Moses. God uses Moses to save his people, and Moses stuttered so bad you couldn't understand him. But God used him. Moses said, you can't use me, God. Use my brother. 
Nobody can understand me. And God said, nope, I'm using you. Because it shows more glory to God when he uses a broken tool than the most perfect tool. This is one of the reasons God allows us broken people to be used, especially priests. Moses, as I said, stuttered so bad. Mary was so poor. Nobody would have thought he would have used Mary. And what about St. Paul? Oh my, my favorite. I always laugh. You see these big hulking statues of St. Paul in front of the Vatican. And he's this big 10 foot tall monster with muscles and wavy hair and holding scriptures and lightning bolts ready to strike the Pharisees. This is who God uses, the powerful and the mighty. Uh-uh. You know who St. Paul was? We know this from the Apocryphal Gospels. St. Paul was ball-headed, bow-legged, hook-nose, and four-foot-eight. That's who St. Paul was. Hook-nose, ball-headed, bow-legged, and four-foot-eight. And that's who God used to change the world. That's why he picked St. Faustina. John Paul II said she is nobody from nowhere. But God used her to change the world. So we're just getting ready to finish here. I want to show you a quick video. It's only just over a minute long. Brother Mark's going to cue it up here. And here in this video, we see a little bit about who St. Faustina was and what God had planned for her in her life. Assured of what she must do, Faustina left for Warsaw at once. There she was rejected at every convent door except one, the Congregation of the Sisters of Our Lady of Mercy, a religious order dedicated to helping prostitutes reform their lives. After Faustina entered the Sisters of Mercy, her superior, in her notes, assessed the new novice as no one special and put Faustina to work to pay for her religious clothing. She was a simple, uneducated nun with just three grades of elementary schooling. She rarely left the convent and performed the most mundane tasks. Her life appeared so ordinary on the outside. She was busy working and spent part of her time in the chapel. Every day she met the same people. Her day had the same rhythm. So on the outside, she led a dull, humdrum existence. Beneath her perceived dull existence, Faustina's deep inner life overflowed with extraordinary mystical graces, divine revelations, and heavenly visitations. Christ began appearing frequently to her in visions, sometimes as the King of Mercy, resplendent in light and majesty. At other times, he appeared as the tortured, crucified Christ. At the request of her spiritual director, Faustina began privately to record these mystical experiences in a diary. Okay, that video short clip just ended with it saying that Jesus told St. Faustina to write this stuff down in a diary. So let's look at our next slide. This is the diary of St. Faustina. So Faustina, who had no education, Jesus tells her to write all this stuff down. And when he appeared to her, he basically, and this is where we're going to end today, gave her five new channels of grace. Why five new channels of grace and to do what? This is where we're going to start tying divine mercy all together. 
Those five new channels of grace are something that we call, let's flip to the next slide, the devotion of divine mercy. And it can be easily memorized by the little acronym FINCH, F-I-N-C-H, F-I-N-C-H. F is the feast of divine mercy. I is the image of divine mercy. N is the novena of divine mercy. C is the chaplet of divine mercy. And H is the hour or three o'clock hour of divine mercy. Now, Jesus in 1931, when he appeared to St. Faustina, gave her these five new channels of grace called the devotion of divine mercy. But as I said, we're going to end here today because people say, well, Father, devotions are just optional. We don't need another devotion. We got another. We already have a devotion to St. Therese. All right. Here's the difference, everybody. As much as I love St. Therese, she's not God. So a devotion to God through divine mercy is more important than a devotion to any of the saints. Secondly, this devotion is a purpose. Yes, devotions are optional to the Catholic Church. Well, then why do them? Because God has a plan. Now, I come from Detroit. And I always ask the question, who was the greatest NFL football player of all time? You got it correct. Barry Sanders. <laughs> he was the greatest running back ever to play the game because he did it all without an offensive line and no quarterback. The Lions had the worst head coach, no quarterback, and no offensive line. Everybody keyed on Barry Sanders, and still he ran like a madman. But do you think Barry Sanders ever played the game? Because that's how he was judged. How, how was any athlete judged? They're judged how they perform in the game. But do you think any athlete goes into a game without practice? No. No player is going to step on that field without having practiced. So while Barry Sanders is judged by how he did in the game, he need to go through practice so he could excel in the game. Make sense? Make sense. Let's tie it together now. How you will be judged is the message of divine mercy, the ABCs. Did you ask for forgiveness? Did you be merciful to your brothers and sisters? And did you completely trust in God? That's the message of the diary and the message of the Bible. That's how you will be judged. Okay, Father, if that's how I'm going to be judged, help me do it. How do I get better at it? How can I live that? You can do it by practice. And what's the best way to practice? The devotion of divine mercy. We just put it up there. The feast, the image, the novena, the chaplet, and the hour of mercy are the devotional practices that will help you live a deeper message of divine mercy because that's how you will be judged. But how you will be judged when you leave your door every day and you live your life is how you'll be judged. You don't want to leave your door without being prepared. Your practice is doing those devotional aspects of divine mercy so that you can strengthen your living of the message of mercy. That's why we want you to come to the feast of mercy and ask for the grace. That's why we want you to adore the Lord in the image of divine mercy, to pray the novena, to pray the chaplet, and honor the three o'clock hour of, of mercy, which is the three o'clock hour. Practicing the devotion is to live a stronger message, and that's how you will be judged, and that's how you will get to heaven.
That's why divine mercy is not just a devotion. A lot of people confuse this. It's a message, ABC, and a devotion, Finch. So we're going to leave it there tonight. Or today, it's still today. We're going to leave it there. And next week, I want you to come back so that Brother Mark can put that last slide back up again, Finch. Because next week, we're going to cover all those elements and explain to you everything you need to know about that feast. Are you preparing for it? Do you know what two simple things Jesus said that you need to do to receive this thing called the extraordinary promise offered only one day a year on Divine Mercy Sunday? Come next week to find out. Let's go ahead and put that slide back up one more time. The image. We're going to tell you what you need to know about the image and why it's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, sacred art icons in history of the Christian Christianity. And what you need to do to receive the grace is what Jesus said, to offer protection. The novena. We're going to talk about what makes the novena of divine mercy different from any other novena we have in the Catholic Church. The chaplet. C, we're going to tell you why the chaplet of divine mercy is one of the most powerful prayers outside of the mass that you could ever make and why that's so. And H, we're going to tell you what Jesus said to do at the three o'clock hour. And surprisingly, it wasn't to pray the chaplet. We'll tell you all about it. So thank you for showing that slide, Brother Mark, one more time. So we're going to finish today by saying, come back next week. It'll be a different talk from today. But if you miss today, that's okay. Come back next week because we're going to talk about Finch, F-I-N-C-H, the devotion of divine mercy. And we're going to tie it all together for you. This is what Divine Mercy 101 is all about. You just learned the first part. Next week, we're going to talk about the second part. And we're going to start with the Feast of Divine Mercy Sunday. Again, what graces you can get and how you receive them. So thank you. And before we sign off, we want to show you again, these talks are part of my series called Explaining the Faith. It's a three set DVD series that you can see on your screen that if you'd like to share this with friends and relatives, my talks that I'm giving every Saturday are from this DVD series. Uh, not exact, but right dead on, I think. And you can get it. Look on your screen at shopmercy.org. Or if you want to call 1-800-462-7426, which is basically the number 1-800-4-MARIAN, M-A-R-I-A-N. Or if you want to live stream it, please visit thedivinemercy.org slash explaining the faith. So God bless all of you. Thank you for joining us for uh, Divine Mercy 101, part one. And join us next Saturday, July 4th at 11 o'clock again as we bring you Divine Mercy 101, Part 2. So God bless all of you. And remember, if you want to share in all the graces that we Marian priests and brothers generate from all of our masses, prayers, rosaries, chaplets, all the stuff that we do, if you want to share in, I'm going to give you one more website. Sorry, I don't have it written down. But it's easy to remember, micprayers.com, which stands for Marians of the Immaculate Conception. M-I-C-Prayers, one word, dot com. It takes less than 10 seconds. 
there's no charge and you can enroll just like that free to become a Marian helper and you can share in all the graces that we have as Marian priests and brothers by decree of the Holy See. The Holy See said that we are a spiritual benefit society and you can receive a lot of those graces. So God bless you. And until next week, through the intercession of St. Faustina, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen, and God bless you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content, which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit DivineMercyPlus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's DivineMercyPlus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.